All right, cheat listeners, let's take a trip. And I mean, like, we're going to get on a plane. Imagine you've just boarded a flight. You found your seat, stowed your carry-on in the bin above. You're settling in, scrolling through the movie options. And then the person who has the seat next to you arrives. They've got a carry-on bag slung over their shoulder, and in their arms, a 70-pound pig. Yes, a pig. But then, before the plane can even take off, the pig flops into the aisle and does its business. Yes, and while the passenger tries to clean up after her dependent, the pig begins to howl. Inside Edition even did a piece on one of these flying pigs, named Hamlet. So what do the other passengers think of flying with a pig on board? At this point, are y'all wondering what I'm wondering? How in the name of sit back, relax, and enjoy the flight was this pig allowed on the plane? Well, it's all due to its status as an emotional support animal. ESAs are a form of assistant animals that popped up in the early 2000s. Different from service animals, but not the same as pets. ESAs are meant to provide a therapeutic purpose for someone who has anxiety, depression, PTSD, or other psychological disorders. And you need a certificate from a mental health professional to qualify your animal as one. But these animals don't need to be trained in order to qualify. And once people realized that the certificate came with some really great benefits, you saw a boom in ESAs. At the time, in the early 2000s, that same certificate would also let you carry your animal for free on an airplane. So, you know, if somebody paid 100 bucks to get this certificate, it was a bargain. They could fly anywhere they wanted with their animal and not pay for it, and they could get into any apartment they wanted. The difference between an emotional support animal and Babe the pig starts to get pretty hazy when people use their ESA status to just do whatever they want with their pets. A rare negative consequence is that people get hurt. I have had a couple of cases where other animals were hurt or killed by untrained emotional support animals. In the long run, it makes landlords and businesses more suspicious of people who claim to be disabled because they're aware that there are a lot of people cheating. I'm Alzo Slade, and this is Cheat, the podcast where we ask, is it ever okay to break the rule? In this week's episode, When Pigs Can Fly, Navigating the expanding, complicated world of assistant animals. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's 2015. Chris Slavin is in a room with two other people. They're all waiting to be matched with their service dogs. And there's a lot of nerves around that because you just are like, is my dog going to like me? What if my dog doesn't like me? Chris waited years for a service dog to become available through an organization that trains service animals. And now that day had come, she would get her match. 
The first two matches went really, really well. And then it was Chris's turn. Her match? Earl, a 15-month-old yellow lab. When I first met Earl, I looked around and the other two dogs were like gazing lovingly into their new partner's eyes. And Earl was just drooling copiously and sniffing the floor to try to find food. And I was just like, oh my gosh, my dog doesn't like me. What are we going to do? I'll be the first person that ever had a failed match with needs. And I was kind of like heartbroken. I was just like, oh no, my dog is not the right match. And then all of a sudden he looked up at me and I looked into his brown eyes and he was just had this expression. He has an expression of just having walked this earth before. He's such a gentle soul. This would be the beginning of a very unique bond. Service animals are defined in the Americans with Disabilities Act, or ADA, of 1990. They're dogs, or in some cases, miniature horses, that are specifically trained to perform tasks for an individual with a disability. So they're allowed in places that typically don't permit pets. Most of the service dogs from Needs come with about 40 commands, which is like their factory settings, if you will. Chris, who uses a wheelchair, had a previous career as an elite athlete. After sustaining some injuries that limited her mobility, she knew a service dog could be really helpful. Earl had been trained for almost a year to be able to support her with day-to-day tasks. He picks items up that I drop so he can pick up car keys, he can pick up my phone, he can pick up a credit card if I drop it. He's able to pick a paperclip off of a tile floor. He can press lift buttons. She would go nearly everywhere with him and felt comfortable taking him in public because she knew he was trained to handle it. Even in loud, chaotic settings, like restaurants or planes, Earl stays on the job. They're trained to be safe dogs, as safe as a dog can be. So that when they're in public and he's wearing his vests, people have an expectation of what his behavior is going to be and that he is not going to be barking. He's not going to bite anybody. He's not going to be anxious. He's not going to be food aggressive. He's not going to be running around. For Chris, having Earl absolutely changed her life. It actually helps me overcome my disability by being able to have Earl pick up my keys for me instead of me. The number of pencils or things that I used to drop, that you would drop them on the floor before I got Earl, and you'd think here to yourself, what is the value of this item? And is it worth me just wheeling on? Or is it worth the effort that it's going to take to like reach over and try to pick this up and the time involved in doing that? But after a while, Chris started to notice that people seemed suspicious of Earl. She'd be waiting for a seat at a restaurant and then be asked to leave. When she asked about it, she get told that they didn't allow animals, even though that policy is technically against the law. And then one day, something happened that made a lot of this confusion clear. It was about six months after Chris and Earl had started working together. They were in an elevator at a medical facility. Normally, pets aren't permitted. But as a service dog, Earl was allowed. I was in my wheelchair. Earl was seated on my right on the floor, you know, just sitting, waiting for the door to close. And an older woman came in just as the doors were closing. The other woman was holding a dog. She had a miniature poodle that literally jumped out of her handbag. 
and onto the floor, jumped up and bit Earl in the face and kind of hung on for a moment and then released. And the woman picked up the dog and as she's picking up the dog, she says to me, he's a service dog. He's allowed to be here. And my dog, Earl, like looked up to me with a bleeding face and he, like his snout was bleeding and he never moved. He never retaliated. He never barked. He never even shook his head to get the poodle off. So it's clear that this dog is trained. But you can't say the same for this poodle because if this dog was supposed to be a service dog too, why attack Earl? Chris had no clue what to do. I was just so shocked at the time. The woman literally caught off the elevator and ran away. My dog's standing there bleeding, like literally the blood is kind of, you know, pooling on the floor of the elevator and she was off. And then, of course, I had no idea if that dog had his shots. Like, I knew nothing. Luckily, the facility was small. So Chris was able to ask around and found out that the dog did have its shots. She found out something else, too, about this woman and her dog. She told me that it was a service animal and it was not. First, she said it was a service animal. Then she said it was an emotional support animal. And then finally she confessed. She just wanted to be able to bring her pet in. And she said, I just, I wanted to be able to bring Peaches, I think was the dog's name. I wanted to be able to bring Peaches in to see my mother-in-law or whoever it was. Chris was rattled. She heard from other friends about times their service dogs were attacked by emotional support animals or fake service animals like Peaches. I have several friends who have had to retire their dogs due to attacks where their dog has not been able to work anymore. And I have friends that they are 100% dependent upon their dog due to the type of disability that they really can't go out and be at all independent except with their assistance dog. It felt like the boundaries between a service dog, an emotional support animal, and a pet that people just wanted to take with them anywhere had gotten really blurry. And part of the reason why it's so blurry is because of how easy it is to get ESA status for a pet. It became the kind of thing a person can do without really questioning whether they need to do it. And it all has to do with some pretty major loopholes in ADA law. More on that after the break. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed with mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. The problem with the Department of Justice regulations is that the Department of Justice does not give businesses any way to verify that an animal is, in fact, a service animal. This is Richard Hunt, a lawyer with decades of experience in accessibility legislation. The DOJ regulations say that a business can only ask a person who has an animal, are you disabled 
and what does your animal do for you? If you ask more questions than that, then according to the Department of Dis- Justice, you have violated the Americans with Disabilities Act. So let's say Chris goes out to eat at a restaurant. The way the law is in the U.S., she doesn't have to show any proof that Earl is a service dog. That leaves lots of room for people to cheat because all you have to do is walk up with your dog. And, of course, if you say it's an emotional support animal, then they can kick you out because emotional support animals are not specially trained. But if you walk in with your dog and say, this is my epileptic seizure alert dog, the business has to let you in, and they can't tell whether you're telling the truth or not. The law was designed this way in part to not discriminate against folks with disabilities or to place undue burden on them. But it's created this gray space for people who don't have service animals to try and claim the same accommodations for their pets. There's just an extreme lack of education and understanding around the law. It's a muddy law. The regulations that exist are difficult to understand for many people. A lot of people in, in kind of who have service dogs will say, well, they're not difficult to understand. They're very clear. But for the general public, there's been so much misinformation. It does get a little complicated because there's the ADA, but then you've also got the U.S. regulatory laws for housing and transportation. And it's those laws that actually gave birth to the idea of the emotional support animal. Those laws use the term assistant animals and consider ESAs to fall under that category, thereby granting ESA owners certain rights, like taking a pig on a plane. But still, what exactly are emotional support animals? I think part of the difficulty in talking about this topic is that there's not really a clear or standardized definition of emotional support animals. This is Dr. Cassie Bonus an assistant professor at the University of New Mexico and a licensed clinical psychologist. Pets can reduce stress. I mean, there's, we're not arguing about the evidence for animals in our lives and the importance of them, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that rises to the level of like having a disability-related need for that animal. So it's this idea that disability substantially interferes with someone's ability to perform major life activities. So something that they must perform to kind of operate in the world is is being impaired by this diagnosis or by these symptoms specifically. And that having that animal, without that animal, they cannot perform those major life activities. Again, it's not a matter of just kind of discomfort, so to speak. ESAs were initially supposed to provide a clear therapeutic benefit to someone with a mental disability, but it shifted a little, partly because All you really need to qualify your pet as an emotional support animal is a letter from a licensed mental health professional who affirms that the animal in question will help with a disability. That's led to this business where you go online, you answer a 20-minute or 15-minute questionnaire, a licensed marriage and family therapist somewhere reads your answers and says, I'm saying you're suffering from anxiety or depression, and you need to have your emotional support animal. And it's become real easy to get those letters. In fact, it's turned into an industry. You can just go online, connect with a professional, have a brief chat, pay for a letter, and boom, you've got one. There's just a misunderstanding about what emotional support animals are. So I think sometimes 
people have the experience where it's, you know, I have this animal that does bring me joy and brings me comfort. And I, I love having this animal here. It's good for my well-being. I can just go online and get like a piece of paper that says that I need to have this animal and then I can take my animal with me into, you know, no pet housing, for example. I'm not sure that people necessarily always understand the complexities of what emotional support animals are actually intended to do. Dr. Bonus, who was on a team looking into the ethical questions around emotional support animals, wonders if this puts therapists in a weird position. Clinical therapists and mental health professionals aren't exactly trained to make this type of assessment. It's a relatively new one, the term only really coming around since the late 80s and early 90s. For clinical health providers, like the therapists you see weekly, it makes sense that there should be another person involved in the decision. There have been several instances of mental health professionals who have, I would say, like operated outside the bounds of their competency on this issue or who have violated standards of practice or ethical standards or guidelines. And oftentimes they have been working for these kind of for-profit industry, like websites that claim to certify emotional support animals. But in many cases, even outside kind of the industry component, I think folks who are doing this, mental health professionals who are doing this, just don't necessarily understand exactly what they're doing. On top of that, there's still not a ton of research in this area. We know that animals do make us feel good, but do emotional support animals provide something that differs from a companion animal? And if they do, does that mean they should have allowances? Is there evidence for emotional support animals above and beyond just like a companion animal or a pet? And right now, the literature really doesn't support that there's kind of an additional benefit to an emotional support animal specifically. That is not to say that that's not true, that they don't provide benefit, but the research really isn't kind of supporting the role of ESAs as distinct from companion animals, nor does the literature support that they're able to mitigate symptoms of disability or ameliorate some disability-related impairment or interference in that person's life. So the, the question is, is we really need more research? <laughs> I kind of always tell folks, you know, I'm open to changing my mind on this. It's not that we don't want to make more space in our lives for our pets or want to deny someone care that could really help them. But it's thinking about how to navigate this ambiguous territory. Because the growing ease with which people can pass off their pets as assistant animals is a growing problem. A problem that in the last year, people have been trying to stop. That's after the break. In the last few years, unusual emotional support animals have been attracting a lot of attention, as Inside Edition reported. The woman had noted in her reservation she was bringing an emotional support animal. She apparently did not tell them, however, it was a squirrel. I'm not kidding. This woman is wrangling her peacock into the airport. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. So these people are bringing peacocks and squirrels on the planes? Yeah. It got so bad that the U.S. Department of Transportation had to put a stop to this. At the end of 2020, they issued a new ruling. Airlines were no longer required to make special accommodations for emotional support animals. It got to a point where it was just too confusing. 
inconsistent definitions of assistant animals, fake representations of service animals, which all amounted to a lot of animals misbehaving on planes, which put passengers, crew, and other assistant animals at risk. Also, squirrels. Seriously? Squirrels? And the airline, they had enough of this too. After the policy changed, a bunch of airlines issued a statement that emotional support animals are no longer allowed to fly for free. I think that that is a step in the right direction. But I think that there's an, the other side of that is that there should be a way that people can fly with their animals, their pets, where they're not afraid that their dog or their cat or whatever is going to be killed in transit in cargo. The incentive to claim your animal as an ESA in order to have them fly with you? Chris gets it, and she believes people who are prescribed ESAs should be able to travel safely with them without paying a huge cost. But the long-term harm is evident. And people don't understand the harm, I don't think, of how severe it can be and what, what it really means when your link to independence is taken away because somebody wanted to bring their dog that's untrained to a restaurant. Chris has gotten so frustrated at the situation that she's decided to do something about it. It was one, my dog being bitten more than once and attacked more than once and being denied access into places where I legally have a right to go with my assistance dog. She's been advocating for legislation that would help deter people from misrepresenting their pet as a service animal. The long-term goal is to create a national registry of service dogs. And from there, it's just trying to figure out how do we handle the growing number of pets who provide a variety of services in our lives. I think just recognizing that all animals do play a role in people's lives and it's trying to find the balance and trying to do it in a way that weighs in what people's needs are. And there is a hierarchy of needs. I think that there is a difference between I want to have my dog be able to go everywhere with me to this person needs to have this for their quality of life and their independence. Look, we completely understand the importance of pets to a lot of people. I think we can all agree that there has to be some line drawn that prevents folks from just bringing any kind of animal with them in public spaces. Now, whether your pet is an ESA service animal or not, you shouldn't bring them into public if they don't know how to behave. And if people continue to do this, then that's why we need some rules around this ambiguous situation to determine if your pet can behave in public. Because an actual service animal has the training that supports its owner and is of no harm to the public. When people attach the label of service animal to a pet and they don't have the training, it's a disservice not only to owners who have actual service animals, but to the general public as well. There are people who park in handicapped spaces without the tag. There are people who misrepresent themselves as military to get benefits. So to declare your pet as a service animal when it's not, is just wrong. So don't fake it. Hey folks, thanks for listening. 
just a reminder to follow Cheat wherever you get it. And please do leave a rating and a review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. Also, if you want to listen to the show without the ads, you can subscribe to Cheat Plus. It's like Cheat, but better. It's just $2.99 a month, or if you're in the UK, £2.49. And you get all of this without having to listen to those annoying commercials. Just go to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe instead of follow. You can try it for free now. Next time on Cheat. Sethorn, she gasped. I'm not hearing any plan yet, Warden. His voice was rich and husky, but my name sounds beautiful on your lips, as always. <laughs> Have I scandalized you? I'm sorry. <laughs> Cheat is presented by me, Alzo Slade. This episode was produced by Julia Doyle. The executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. The series editor is Megan Dietrich. The original idea for the show was developed by Tom Fuller. Assembly and scoring by Julia Doyle. Engineering and sound design by Martin Peralta at Output Media. Our production coordinators are Jennifer Mystery and Iker Egbatola. <laughs>